So today we begin a new study, and we are going to be in the book of James. And so turn with me to the book of James. And as you are turning there, uh, what information do you seek when you start a new job? So think about it. Maybe think back to the last job that you started. What information were you looking for? Uh, or maybe if you've not had a job, uh, maybe think about uh, that the first time in that new class, what was your expectations? Like, what were you looking for? There's basic information, right? Uh, at, at a job place, we might want to know where the break room is, uh, or at least uh, after the first Maybe day we'll really want to know where the break room is because we'll need to get, you know, need to decompress, need to, need to have rest. Um, or, or at least we want to know where the bathroom is, right? Uh, we want to know those basic informational things. But there's also more complex information that we'll want to know. We want, we'll want to know what it takes to do our job, right? We're hired for a job. We want to know what it takes to do that job. Or if we're in a classroom setting, we want to know what is expected of us by the teacher. Uh, one of the most, actually, I always kind of enjoyed it. One of the first meetings of a new class in college is typically going over the syllabus. I enjoyed it because it was like a free day. Uh, but it was also kind of boring because you're just talking, like looking at, I'm just going to stare at this paper and hear the teacher drone on. But one of the benefits of that kind of a class, right, is that you begin to understand what the expectations are you are for you as a student. It helps to know that. You want to know this kind of information. So a good workplace or a good uh, teacher sets up those expectations. They give you that information. Uh, they set you up with someone who is knowledgeable, who has helped, helped to train you. We think of that in a workplace, right? We want to be with someone who is able to instruct us in the job that we're going to do. Uh, or at least answer the questions that we have. Uh, again, expectations, a, a good workplace, a good classroom gives us expectations and sets those forward. What do I expect out of you in the first weeks, in the first months, in the first year? A bad workplace or even a bad classroom, right, on the other hand, gives us no none of that, right? No context, no instruction, no training no expectations. We just go into it and they say, okay, good luck. Right? Good luck. Hope you succeed. Right? And if they're telling us, hope you succeed, we know we won't. Right? That's a, that's a red flag right there. That's a red flag warning sign. It might be time to make sure your resume is still out there or it may be time to drop the class and find another one. Uh, right? So we, we know the difference between those two things. We, and if we don't know it yet, we'll, we'll learn that as we grow. But as we think of the early church, right, as they grew and expanded, they needed to grow in, in their understanding of the word of God, of the works of Jesus Christ. What does Christ's coming mean for me? Right? They needed to be able to answer that question. They needed instruction. They needed faithful pastors who could help them to understand what it means to live as a Christian. And this is what James is doing in his letter. He is instructing believers. And so that's kind of the overarching theme that we'll be going through as we walk through the book of James, is that James is instructing 
believers. Uh, so I want us this morning just to read this first verse, James 1, 1, and we'll kind of get in uh, the context to this letter uh, and prepare us for the, the weeks to come. The word of the Lord says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So as we think of James, if we know anything about it, it is both a beloved and a controversial letter. It is beloved because of the ease of which we can go to it and receive instruction. Right? So I, I call it, I say it's instructing believers. And if you go and you really pick out any, any portion of it, what you find is some just straight instruction. It's just instruction for us. It's not the heady theological logic of, say, the book of Romans, or even of the book of Hebrews, as we've been going through that on Thursdays, right? There's some theological uh, underpinnings there that we have to understand in order to get understand those books, right, those letters. But here with James, we can kind of pick it up and we read it, and, we, and it's pretty easy just to grab it and go. Um, and so... Uh, in some ways, that even shares that style with the book of First John, the letter of First John, which is in this in a similar way. It's not heady on theological argument as much as it is just instruction. Uh, and so, it's a beloved book. We like it for that, right? There's some simplicity that we can come to. We like the theological uh, arguments, the reasoning of the book of Romans. Uh, but sometimes it's nice just to pick up something that we don't need to have a you know, aspirin after we finish kind of reading through it, right? Um, but it's also controversial. It's a controversial letter. Uh, Luther uh, really poo-pooed on the book of James. Uh, he felt that uh, it was canon, but boy, was it close to not being canon. Like, it, it, it was a hair's breadth uh, from being rejected by Luther. Uh, if we look to the early church fathers in uh, we kind of examine their their preaching and their use of the scripture. We don't find the book of James mentioned uh, much or at all. Uh, one commentator, Douglas Moo, describes the book of James not so much as a rejected letter, but as a neglected letter. And so we might ask the question, does this letter belong in the canon of scripture? The answer is yes. I think we should seek to interact with it and to understand it especially on its own terms, because uh, and, and the reason why Luther uh, was so adamant about it or, or why he found it so controversial is because it does interact with the issue of faith and works, and it seems on the face value to contradict what Paul says, because Paul says it's faith without works, and James says, no, it's faith with works. So we have to come to some kind of understanding some kind of concord on that. Uh, but this is an issue that we will deal with when, if we get there, when we get there, Lord willing, right? Uh, and even that little Lord willing, that's something we get from the book of James. Interesting. So that's why it's a beloved letter. There's a lot of things in it that we, we see surface. Uh, and, but let's just take a look at this first verse. Let's try to understand it, try to get the background to it, right? Uh, first, who wrote the letter? Well, we have a clue in our, in our verse, right? It says James. James. Verse 1 tells us that James wrote this letter. Uh, and then this is also just a, a fun language side note. 
Uh, fun for me, maybe not for you, but that's how it goes. Uh, where we get James, if we were to look at the Greek, we would actually find that it's the name Jacob. So then the question becomes, how does Jacob become James? Well, it seems that happened through the Latin. Uh, and the Latin uh, transliterated is Jacobus, James, right? So we get from Jacob to James, from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English. Right? So there's quite a, a process of change there. Uh, it's just a curiosity of the transmission of language. So you can file that one away, save that for a rainy day when you, you know, did you know, right? You can pull that one out. Or maybe there's like, you know, Bible trivia night. You might get that one. Uh, but so James wrote it. Who, who is James? Which James? Uh, we see here that he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so he identifies himself as a believer, right? This is a believer in Christ Jesus, a follower of Christ. And also we shouldn't neglect the theological content that is in, in what he is saying there when he says Lord Jesus Christ. In that identification, there is a name and two titles. The name is Jesus, right? Yahweh saves. The two titles are Lord and Christ, right? Lord is this constitutes a, a title, an identification that Jesus is master. Jesus is ruler. Jesus is king. Christ is another title. It's the Greek word uh, for the Hebrew Messiah. And that comes with it, theological weight of the Old Testament. So if we went back to the Old Testament, we studied what is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? What is he to be? What is he to do? That's who Christ is. That's who Jesus is. He is the Christ. Right? So this is, James here is confessing something of his belief. So when we try and want to understand who is James, we understand that he is a believer. Right? He's confessing something. James is Jewish, and that will become more clear to us, uh, patently more clear as we walk through this letter. Because he makes a lot of allusions to uh, the Old Testament, uh, both directly and indirectly. Uh, this is a Jewish person making a confession about his God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's who we know. But who is this James? I've not answered the question, right? I've asked the question, not answered the question. He is likely a leader in the church. And I'm going to tease you a bit more here before giving you an answer. He is likely a leader in the church. Uh, why do I say that? Because he has the gumption to write to the church at large. Right? So this is a letter to the broader church. So he must be someone of significance. Uh, we know that this letter wa was received by the church. How do we know that it was received by the church? Because we have it today. Right? So the church felt it was proper and important moved by the Holy Spirit to copy it down through the history of the world. So if a James of no reputation would have written a letter like this to a church, it's not likely that the church would have received it and retained it, right? It would have been thrown in the trash heap. And we see evidence of such things happening, uh, where false letters uh, or just letters of no importance get lost, 
right? They don't get copied down through the ages. So, who is this James? I, I keep teasing it. I'm just going to keep on doing this, I guess. No. Uh, we have three Jameses is, 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 is to consider. Uh, and we have James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. These are kind of the three that are typically identified or uh, identified in the scripture that we could, we could find. Uh, there's a fourth one who's like the father of one of the apostles. So let's walk through this. James, the son of Zebedee, who is he? He is John's brother. So John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, they are Boagernes, if I can say that rightly, the sons of thunder. Uh, John, we know, right? John, Peter, uh, and here we have James, the son of Zebedee, an apostle. It is unlikely that he would have written this letter because he died pretty early on in the church. He died around AD 44. Uh, Acts 12, 1 through 3 records that. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And that leads to Peter's uh, miraculous delivery from prison. But James, the brother of John, dies. James, the son of Zebedee, dies. So it's unlikely he would have had time to write such a letter. The second option is James, the son of Alphaeus, and he too is an apostle. And Calvin received the, the letter of James, and he thought his, his understanding was that it was this James who wrote uh, this letter. Uh, his reasoning is that between James, an apostle, and James, a disciple, so that is the half-brother of Jesus, uh, he was not an apostle, right? He was not a disciple early on. John 7, 5 actually tells us for not even his brothers believed in him. So, right, so for Calvin, the argument is, so this guy who didn't believe him at first, but then came to believe him after his resurrection, or this James who was with Jesus all along, we're going to believe that an apostle wrote this letter. Uh, an apostle would have done that. Uh, but we don't really know much about James, the son of Alphaeus. If you go through the scripture, you, once you get out of the Gospels, you don't really see it. Uh, you see a reference to him uh, meeting with the brothers in Acts 1, but that's about it. So he doesn't seem to have this reputation, except for maybe this letter. Or we have the third option, James, the half-brother of Jesus. So what about Jesus' half-brother, right? He's not a full brother because Christ had a different father. Um, what about this James? Well, church tradition actually says that it is Jesus's half-brother James that writes this letter. That's what church tradition hands down to us. I'm inclined to believe the same. So which one do I stand at? I would stand with James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, we do surmise that this James, the brother of Jesus, was the kind of lead pastor in the church in Jerusalem. If you remember the Jerusalem council scene in Acts 15, James plays a prominent role in that. And it actually is from him that a letter is drafted to the churches about the issue of circumcision. So James is 
uh, an important person. Uh, Paul himself describes in the book of Galatians a meeting with James in Galatians 1, 18 to 19. Paul says, Paul writes there, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What's interesting there is that Peter, or Peter, listen to me, Paul accounts James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle. So even though he wasn't officially one of the 12 apostles, he does seem to have risen to that status, even as Paul himself was not one of the original 12 apostles, and as he calls himself in 1 Corinthians 15, right, as one untimely born. So Paul seems to indicate that this James has priority and importance, but nowhere in our letter. So which James? Who Who is this James? The reason there's this question is because in this letter we have no indication other than this identification that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else that we come to to try and understand who wrote this letter is a is a reasoning and conjecture. And I would just give you some of that reasoning here. Why do I think it's James, the brother of Jesus? Uh, first, he would have had the authority to write a letter of this kind. Right? He, if he was the lead pastor or the lead elder at the church in Jerusalem, he would have had the authority to write it. The second thing is he seems to have a strong understanding and adherence to the Jewish faith. We see that in his uh, letter to the Jerusalem council. And is imploring of Paul to show himself a good Jewish person when Paul returns uh, and then is subsequently uh, taken in, into prison, into custody. Uh, Acts 21 tells us that uh, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And then down 23 and 24. Uh, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they all may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but you yourself also live in observance of the law. Uh, this, by the way, is the reason why we sometimes hear of James, the brother of Jesus, being called James the just. He's the just because... Um, he is one who seems to hold sincerely to the tenets of the Jewish faith uh, and carries that forward, in a sense, into the Christian, uh, the Christian faith. Uh, one commentator simply argues that no other James lived long enough or was influential enough to, to write this kind of a letter. And so um, now, of course, the question is this, does any of this matter? The answer is yes, it does matter. Uh, It helps us to understand the purpose of this letter. It helps us to understand the content of this letter. To understand who wrote it uh, helps us to do that. But all that to say is there's room for genuine disagreement. If you don't agree with the logic that I just argued and you think with Calvin it was James the son of Alphaeus, then you can believe that. But we should all agree on this. It is scripture. It is worthy of place in the canon of Scripture. We should heed it as Scripture. When was this letter written? Right. We would want to know when it was written because, in um, again, that helps us understand the context of the arguments. And it becomes especially important when we get to the question of faith versus works. 
Uh, when we get to that discussion, it helps us to know when was this written. Uh, I'm of the mind with some other commentators that it was probably in the middle 80s, 40s, so 40s, uh, before the Jerusalem Council. And again, that becomes important for the discussion on faith first works. This would help us make understanding of that. Because what, what it seems like, uh, when we get to that, I'll tease that part. What it seems like is that there is a nascent uh, understanding of Paul's theology of faith alone. And what James does in writing this letter is he is attacking a false understanding of Paul's theology. Uh, rather than something that he has discussed directly with Paul and finds himself at odds with. So in other words, James would have likely shown more nuance in his discussion of justification by faith in this issue of works had he had, at the time of writing this, a deeper discussion, a deeper understanding with Paul uh, and the outcome of the Jerusalem Council. Because what we understand of the Jerusalem Council, what James says here, would seem to be at odds with one another. Who is this letter written to? Again, we see that in our passage this morning. It says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. And that identification has its own theological weight behind it, right? When we see twelve tribes, we think Jewish people, right? The, the twelve tribes of Israel. When we see the word dispersion, we think linking back to the exile. So, Back when the people were exiled from the land of Israel, from the land of Judah. Uh, so we, it screams to us Jewish people. Uh, just in contrast to that, though, Peter uses this same language. And he, in, in his letter, 1 Peter 1, 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But as you read through 1 Peter, he's not talking to a Jewish audience. He's talking to a Gentile audience. So what do we make of this here? And, of course, what does it matter? So deal with the first issue. What do we make, what do we make of this here? It would seem that James is writing to a Jewish audience, predominantly a Jewish Christian audience. Uh, the allusions throughout the letter back to Judaism, like we'll see he mentions Abraham. And he mentions things that a Jewish audience would know of out of the Old Testament. That lends us to believe it's a Jewish audience. We also have a clue in James 2.2, and I'll read that for us. James 2.2 says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And the word there for assembly is the Greek word for synagogue. And so it seems as though James is writing to Jewish Christians who are still meeting in synagogue. And synagogues, of course, are these places that Jewish people would meet. Uh, those rose up in the time of the exile, in the time of the original dispersion, uh, because they needed some place to meet, to, to, to read the scriptures and to worship God, because the temple was destroyed or the temple was far away. So the same reason uh, those meetings continued, so it seems like... There we have it. We also know that the church and the, the early church had its own form of exile or dispersion in Acts 11, 19. 
Uh, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So James writing here to the twelve tribes and the dispersion seems to mean James is writing to Jewish Christians who have been dispersed away from Jerusalem. Uh, it is likely that he wrote to the Jewish churches in and around Palestine and Syria, which would have been under the purview of the Jerusalem church. These churches also pretty early on experienced pretty, uh, pretty severe hardships with famine. We see that reference to that in the scripture. Uh, but also we know that in AD 70, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple, uh, that they also suffered the churches, the, the Jewish Christians suffered uh, because of uh, kind of Jewish revolts that had risen up, Jewish rebellions. Uh, and perhaps that gives us reason to, right, this is one thing commentators suggest, is perhaps this gives us reason to as to why this letter was kind of neglected. If it was written predominantly to Palestine and to Syrian churches that then come under attack and are destroyed and are dispersed, we would maybe find that the the wide reception of this letter would be kind of muted, kind of tamped down uh, because of those issues. So the losses sustained by the church uh, caused this kind of problem. And that it's written to the 12 tribes also gives us the theological weight is that this is written to the true Israel. Right? So when it says the 12 tribes, this is the true Israel. But again, I ask, why does it matter? Because that's a question I know that you want to ask. I'm up here blathering on about it. Uh, it better be important. And so I want to tell you that it is important. Again, knowing who the letter is to helps us to understand its content. What we're talking about is we want to understand what James has to say to us. And we have to understand who it's to. We better understand the content when we know the context. And that is true of all kinds of different media, not just this letter. But if you want to understand a movie or any other book, understand the context of it helps you to understand the content of it. And this is a matter of being able to interpret and apply the scripture. Again, if you want to interpret and apply the scripture in Christian, if you are a believer, you want to interpret and apply the scripture. You do a better job at those things when you know the background to the passage when you're reading it. So it's something that'll help us understand when, when something is raised, is it a matter of cultural preference or is it a matter of command for obedience? That's what we're talking about. We're not the first church to receive this letter of James, so it would behoove us to recognize that and think through the issues in like manner. So fourthly, though, what form does this letter take? Again, this will help us to understand what is the genre of this letter. What is the genre? Uh, why does genre matter? Because we interpret a poem much differently than we do a narrative. So again, that's just uh, basic issues. One of the reasons I say that, and I'm just going to, this will be a controversial statement. I don't have it written in my notes, so I probably shouldn't say it, but I'll say it anyways. Uh, one of the reasons this is important for instance, when we come to the book of Revelation, do we interpret everything in the book of Revelation as literal narrative? I can tell you, no, you shouldn't. It's poetic. It's a certain genre of literature. It's apocalyptic. 
Does that mean that everything in it is made up and doesn't matter? No, I'm not saying that. Don't take that away. But how we interpret the book of Revelation, if we view it as literal narrative or poetic, figurative, matters. Same way as we go to the book of Psalms, right? We wouldn't understand the Psalms in the same way as we would the book of Judges. That's important. We need to understand that. And I know that I said it was controversial. It's not really controversial. Uh, again, those are basic rules of interpreting and applying the scripture. So let's, let's avail ourselves of them. Well, we know this is a letter. It's an epistle. Uh, we see that at the end of verse 1. Greetings. Uh, ancient letters often began. Who it's from, who it's to, greetings. We see that here, right? We see that elements here. Um, there have been a variety of attempts by scholars to come at a, a genre to the book of James, and it's very difficult. It's not straightforward because there is such a wide range of, of just discussion in it. When you read through the book of James, we'll even see it in verse 2. There's no like, let me segue into what I'm writing about. It's no, here's the first thing I want to talk to you about. And um, we see that sometimes like in uh, Galatians, Paul gets right into the issue, but he segues into that issue. So we, we, there's a bunch of uh, trying to apply some kind of structure to the book of James. It's difficult to do because sometimes it seems to jump from topic to topic. It's not highly structured argument like we see in the book of Romans. Uh, and it's not dealing with one particular church. Galatians was written to the church of Galatia. We just got through 1 Thessalonians, which is written to the church in Thessalonica. This is what we would call a Catholic epistle. That's not a Roman Catholic epistle. Catholic just meaning universal. It's for all of the church. Uh, it's not written to just one particular church. But one helpful way that we might take this book, the structure of this book, the genre of it, is it seems to be a sermon or maybe a series of sermons that have been edited into letter form. So that's kind of how we'll look at it. And that would help to explain some of the jumps in, in discussion and content is that it's sermonic in nature, which is a fun word. I don't know that actually is a word, but it wasn't a squiggly red line on, you know, on, on Google Docs. So there you have it. Uh, but this is kind of the form of this letter. Right? This is the genre. Uh, it seems to be a sermon. Why was this letter written? That's an important question. What, what is being dealt with? Well, it was written for the instruction of the church. This is a pastoral letter written to instruct believers. And James touches on a number of points that we'll go through. He opens up by talking about testing and trials, temptation. We see the issue of prayer come up a couple of times. Uh, there's wisdom in this book and discussion on wisdom. Sometimes that's the, the genre that people would attribute to the book of James, that it is a wisdom book, like we would think of the book of Proverbs. Um, it, it has more than just wisdom in it, though. So it's probably not the best structure. Uh, but, but it does have wisdom. Issues of justice come up in poverty. Let me say, if you read through this and you're a rich person, and because we live in America, we're rich people, uh, there's some harsh things that James says for the rich person. And again, we have to know the context to those statements, but uh, it would behoove us to heed them. And also the issue of healing comes up, uh, especially in joined with prayer. How does healing come about? Confession of our sins in prayer. 
So these are matters of concern for the early church, right? He's not just like, let me think of 10 random issues and, and write about them, but he's concerned for the churches in his day. He's concerned, for instance, when we deal with the issue of justification by faith, he's concerned that some, some Christians are taking Paul's teaching on justification to say that they don't have to be obedient to God. They don't need to obey God in anything. Is that a concern we have in, in the church in our day? Do we not know of people who profess to believe in Christ living just as the world around us? Having the same fights and arguments and hatred, uh, committing adultery uh, and sexual immorality of every kind and, and saying it doesn't matter what God says? but I'm still a believer. What should we make of such a person? Can you be a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and ignore everything that Jesus says? That shows up in James, by the way, James 1.22, a popular verse. Uh, I've uh, preached it before, right? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And let me just say, you're hearing the word right now. What are you going to do with it? That's one of the things I want us to think about as we walk through this book of James is you're hearing the word of God. What are you going to do with it? Because this is not just about an information dump, although it seems like that a bit this morning. This is not an information dump. This is not just here. Let me come and let me hear something of the Bible. And then I check that off my list this week and then I'm good to go. I'm good with God because I've heard the Bible at some point in this week. That's not what God requires of you. That's not what God calls you to. What happens when you hear the word of God, what must you do with it? And what happens if you don't do anything with it? The time we gather to hear God's word is not inconsequential. And the question of the consideration of any sermon or teaching we hear is this. It is not, did the preacher or teacher speak with eloquence? If you're looking for eloquence, you're also looking at the wrong guy. The question is this. Regardless of the speaker, regardless of the eloquence, regardless of the entertaining value of the person preaching God's word, what does the word of God demand of me? That's what matters. If your concern in the gathering is whether you've been entertained enough at the end of it, you've missed something essential. The church is not for entertainment. If you want entertainment, there's a movie theater down the road. Right? Or there's endless sources of entertainment around us. We all have black screens that will surface to us entertainment of all sorts. And isn't it interesting in our culture and our day? how people will make hours upon hours of time to stare into those black screens and receive entertainment, but they won't pick up the scripture and read it for five minutes. If that convicts you like it convicts me, good. This is the word of God. 
What must we do with it? And what happens if we don't do anything with it? The church is for the worship of God. And so we meet to worship. That's what we're here for. We're not here for entertainment. Worship In worship, we submit ourselves to God. We who are in Christ indeed are this, servants, bond servants, slaves, however you want to interpret uh, that word there, which is doulos. So then, as we consider the context and the background to this book of Scripture, what should we think? James is a letter to be reckoned with. And because of the simplicity of the instructions given to us, right? Because of the simplicity with which we receive those instructions, it behooves us all the more to pay attention to them. Because there are issues that we don't have to wade through theological, uh, theological argument and reasoning to try and understand these things. They're simply surfaced. And so we have to deal with them all the more. We can't say, I didn't understand it because Paul's reasoning uh, is too heady, right? We, we can say, as, as Peter does of Paul's writings, some take it and twist it because they don't understand it, right? James is a letter instructive in nature, uh, and we have exhortations to obedience. We ought to consider the word, to do the word, not simply to hear it. And that's what I would pose to you, Christian. How are you obediently living out your faith? James here identifies himself not as Jesus' brother. He doesn't even identify himself as elder, pastor, or apostle. He doesn't give any of that that kind of uh, laudable uh, information. But he identifies himself as a servant. And you know what servants do? They serve kind of in the name. If you have trusted in Jesus, he is your Lord and Christ. He is your master. He is your Messiah, the one who has come to save you from your sins and deliver you from a kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Consider anew this day how you ought to serve him. And I would encourage you, read through the book of James today. Listen to it on audio, whatever, however you want to interact with it, do that. And listen to the instruction that James has to give to the church. And then think about the issues it challenges you in. Think about where you may need to press into those areas in which you are disobedient to God. God has loved you dearly, brothers and sisters in Christ. And in love, we ought to walk in obedience Right? We serve and obey, not in an attempt to win the favor of our God. That's what unbelievers do. We serve and obey because God has already saved us. And because of the love with which he loved us, we love him in return. Or as John says, we love because he first loved us. But for those of you who do not trust in Christ, those of you who profess to, to believe in Christ but fail to live out uh, what he commands, you need to consider this letter as well. You need to consider that God requires something of you. And to fail to give God what is due him results in eternal punishment. Your only hope of salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made the way. It behooves you this day to trust in Christ, 
to confess to God your need of Him, to confess your sins and to look to Him alone, to repent of your sins. James writes this letter because his brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, changed everything. You know one of the reasons why James doesn't mention his blood relation connection? Because that's not important. What's as important is that he has a spiritual connection to Christ. He has submitted himself to Jesus, the Lord, and Christ. And if you would be free of your sins, if you would be free from the penalty of your sins, repent and look to Jesus. If you would find the grace of God, look to Jesus. If you would be saved from the coming wrath, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. This day, let's pray. The Father in heaven, we confess that we so often fail to heed your word. Father, we so often approach it with the flippancy that we do other things in this world. Father, we have a plethora of written text before our eyes day after day. And how often we treat that which is breathed by you, inspired by you, spoken by you, as those things, as a social media post that means nothing. Oh, Father, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of taking your word uh, so flippantly. And help us, Lord God, by your Spirit to see the truth of your word, to believe it and to put it into practice. Father, unless you help us, God, unless you are at work within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure, we will not. So God, be near us. And God, we pray for those who don't believe your word, who don't believe of the coming wrath, who don't believe that if they were called to account before you in this moment, that they would be cast ever from your uh, good presence into the bowels of hell, where they will know nothing but your presence of punishment and justice and holy, righteous anger. Oh, Father, have mercy. Help them to see and to believe. And may we all give you the glory and the honor you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.